Welcome to Haunted Hospitality, Southern Stories Told by Spooky Gingers. I'm Robin. And I'm Zoe. And I have a story for you today that I've already told Robin once. So this is continuing (laughs) our oopsies from last week. Um, We are recording virtually on the 10th again. But Robin, how is life? Life is good. Um, I have an oopsie of my own to declare and fess up to. Oh, no. Yeah. So um, I can't remember which episode it was in, but in a previous life update, I regaled you with a story of how I drove through West Virginia mountains pat like at midnight on very little gas. And my friend and I were scared because the GPS had taken us a route we didn't expect and there were no lights and nobody around. So to help us through our fears... We sang along to the musical part of The Devil Went Down to Georgia, which is a song about the devil challenging a man to the fiddle in a contest. Or maybe the man challenged the devil to the fiddle. Except here's what I said. I said we sang along to the banjo uh, music of The Devil Went Down to Georgia. And I'll be honest with you, Zoe, uh, when I heard the episode before it went live... I was like, oh man, I said banjo, not fiddle. And then I was like, nobody's going to notice. And Zoe, somebody people noticed. noticed. <laughs> uh, my friend specifically noticed. Megan noticed. And then Megan was apparently discreet about it and then told Rachel about it. And then Rachel decided that she would call me <laughs> and just hysterically laughing to the point that I know she was crying. <laughs> Just shouting at me about my mistaking the fiddle for the banjo. And then Rachel's mom texted me about this mistake. And anyway, I am so sorry to the world for saying banjo instead of fiddle. And then not putting a correction up anywhere. So this is my correction. It is a fiddle. And I am so sorry. And I just won't ever speak again. And Zoe, you take everything from this episode on. I've been waiting for this moment f- ever since we've done this <laughs> podcast. No, I'm kidding. I'm 100% kidding. <laughs> uh, well, Robin, um, I, I, if, you know what? I'll make my life update a correction as well. Um, <laughs> Are we just messing up all over the place? Well, actually, this is something that nobody pointed out to me, but literally the day the episode came out, I was like, oh my God, I'm an idiot okay so you know when i did the disney episode i do remember it i mentioned the skyway well first of all okay first of all we both agreed that disney world was older than disneyland but it turns out it's not it's the opposite disneyland is the first one and then it was disney world but anyway but the one that really messed with me is that i called the skyway i got this the ride Skyway confused with the ride Soren, even though okay. I distinctly remember in 2011 going on the ride Soren, and in the episode I said that that the Skyway was discontinued in like the 80s or 90s. I don't remember the exact date. So the Skyway was not something where you go on fake paragliders with a giant screen in front of you. The Skyway was like this track that runs through Disney World where it had little compartments that was underneath it and it would take you across um, Disney in the sky. So it's like gondolas. Is that the term? The sky. Yeah. It's kind of like a um, like a, you know when you go skiing? Ski lift. It's kind of like a ski lift but it had like compartments instead of just a little chair. Okay. Yes. Um, well, Zoe, I forgive you. I forgive you, too. Thank you. This makes it feel like, um, I don't know if you've seen Seth Meyers segments or anything, but I've seen them on YouTube where it's Seth and ex-comedian that he's friends with clear the air. And so the ones with him and Kristen Wiig are especially hilarious. And it's just him saying, I'm so sorry for these reasonable things. Like, I'm so sorry I had to cancel dinner two weeks ago. And it's them saying, I'm so sorry that I've... And then just some outlandish thing that they've done. And, like, you know, it's all fiction and fake. But And then they end each thing with, I forgive you. <laughs> and 
<laughs> it's just so funny. All right. Well, Robin, uh, do you have a something Southern or a spooky for us? A something something, if you will? I do have a something something. You've heard this something something. I forgot about the something something. Okay, well, I'm, I have a something spooky. And I'm. you created a creature corner. Yes. I'm creating Robin's pop culture corner. And of course, if you do a pop culture corner, it can turn into just the pop culture corner. Okay. Okay. So um, I have a show recommendation. That's right. I do remember it. I don't remember the show, though. Okay. So I tweeted about it. Midnight Mass. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. You remember this. Okay. So uh, (laughs) there's... Okay. If you've been listening to this show, um, you know that I have a big appreciation for Mike Flanagan's body, recent body of horror work, okay? So he has written and directed, created uh, the Netflix series Haunting of Hill House, which is based off of the book of the same name by Shirley Jackson. He wrote and created The Haunting of Blind Manor, which is based off of the works of Henry James with particular attention to The Turning of the Screw. So he's known for these horror adaptations, and he recently came out with Midnight Mass, which, I mean, you've probably heard people talking about it because Twitter went bonanza. (laughs) And it is so good, but it is different than the others. I actually had to look it up and make sure that this wasn't somehow a continuation of the Haunting series that I had missed, even though I try to keep up on those types of things. And I had to go to a article on Decider to know for sure, because a lot of his actors remain the same in a lot of his work. So in The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, they're, it's hard to say if they're in the same universe or not, because I'm not exactly sure they treat the afterlife and ghosts in the exact same way and according to the same rules, but it's very much in the same vein of each other and part of a continuing series. And part of the reason we know that is because there are actors that he uses in both, uh, both series who play different characters. Now, he's using a lot of these same actors in Midnight Mass, including his uh, wife, Kate Siegel, who plays one of the main characters, Aaron Green. Now, um, according to the Decider article, and, you know, everybody else, but I just wanted to cite where I saw this, uh, this is definitely not a continuation of the same story. And when I got deeper into watching the series, it definitely made it very clear to me that that was not the case, because this has... It's very much horror and there are very much different elements that he brings into it that i can see as part of just his touch as a creator Mm -hmm. but uh it had an entirely different feel to it and tone to it um i'm gonna go into a couple things i'm gonna try to make this not spoilery for you guys and i finally finished it uh just last night it kind of messed with my head a little bit but um One of the things I wanted to talk about is uh, his ability to make you always nervous and feeling like there's something in the background, whether or not there actually is. So in The Haunting of Hill House, and I didn't, I watched the entire Haunting of Hill House uh, season with 10 episodes, and I didn't realize until the very end that there were in multiple scenes every episode there were hidden ghosts in the background whenever you're at hill house and i've it just if you want if you've seen the show and you are like wait what are you talking about or you want to make sure you look and look it up there are multiple videos on youtube that just go in and point them all out and it really can blow your mind if you had no idea this was going on and then the same thing to an extent, happens in Bly Manor. Uh, Zoe, I'm going to give you a little bit of spoilers because she and I are going to watch it for our Patreon. She's covering her headset ears. <laughs> no, that would be my headset where... ears. <laughs> Even though that's where her sound is coming in from. Oh, okay. Um, but in Bly Manor, they're in the background as well, except there's fewer of them, and every single one of them ties into the story in some way. We learn about the background at least a little bit of every single one of those ghosts. So I'm watching Midnight Mass and I wasn't exactly, I I didn't look in the background thinking, oh, what's going to be in the background because this is his work. But I found myself gazing in the background 
because he used brilliant techniques to get me to feel like something was out there, even without thinking of it as Mike Flanagan's work. I need to be looking for it. So one of those things is that there is, I I don't think it's spoilery to say, there is something on Crockett Island, which is this small insular New England island uh, that is very down on its luck, uh, where this story takes place. And there is something that appears sometimes staring right at people through their windows, and it creates jump scares. And it's kind of humanoid looking, and you you never really get a good look at it until you're a little bit deeper into the series. So, obviously, e- the guy's not there all the time. The humanoid figure is not outside windows all the time, but he leaves windows uh, unguarded by drapes or by blinds at night. So, even on scenes where it has nothing to do with that... You, if people are standing near windows, you are on your guard for it. And then there was this other scene, well, a pair of scenes, when one of the main characters, Riley Flynn, is walking with uh, first Kate Siegel's character, Aaron, and then another guy whose name escapes me, through the town at night. And it is, they're having these mostly peaceful, character driven conversations that are not about being haunted in any real sense at all. And it is not a like severe i'm in suspense feeling that i have when he's they're going through the town at night but it is a constant awareness that something could be lurking just outside of the shot especially since the thing is known to have glowing yellow eyes and the lights that are on in town at night are yellow and they're glowing and it, i just watched that and it's there's a lot of things that i could say about the show but that's just really something that ins- impresses me about Mike Flanagan as a creator. And I-, I think that it's really the little things in the storytelling in this piece that makes me so happy with it. And one other thing, if you aren't a fan of his Haunting of Hill House or Haunting of Bly Manor, I still think you should possibly give this one a try because it is so different. And for me, I really love both of those series, both of those seasons, but... It did have, like, one big flaw, I thought, which is that the main root of the quote-unquote evil in the story felt very hokey to me. It did not feel genuine. And in this story, in Midnight Mass, the main root of evil, as in the reason it is affecting everybody, is very human. It is humans... um, It is humans' wistfulness. It is humanity's feeling of, I have the best of intentions, therefore I'm right in this. It's a very utilitarian belief, and by that I mean the ends justify the means. And I think the story is proof that they don't. (laughs) But uh, it it is so interesting, and there's so much I want to say about this, but... This is only a small segment, so I'm not going to just go on about this for forever, but highly recommend it. It is so good. This has been Robin's Pop Culture Corner, <laughs> over and out. All right. Well, thank you. And I think last time I said I would try to check it out, but you know me. I like to watch she and the Princesses of Power, and um, <laughs> that this, these are kind of different genres, just a little bit. I do, you know... Just a little bit. How about this? Watch Bly Manor first. Yeah, yeah, I've already agreed to do that, so. You did. See, guys, I have a great strategy for getting my friends to watch and read what I want them to watch and read. Yeah. I was like, let's make an episode about it. Let's just do an entire podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Fun fact, that's how I actually got you to read a book that I want to read, so. Wait. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was, like, all about that book anyway. <laughs> that is true. So it just so happens that we both wanted to read it. Yes. And um, I won't mention the name of it because I keep getting it wrong. But you said it's... The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. That's the one. You said it's the same author as the... The Southern Book Club's Guide for Slaying Vampires. Exactly. Which I believe was a something Southern slash spooky in an earlier episode. Yes, it's both. And who knows? Maybe um, this one is both Southern and spooky. I know it's spooky. I don't know if it's Southern, but he's Southern. I don't believe so. so. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see.
You never know where things are going to be set. Exactly. So before I get into my story, I just want to real quick shout out again that our Patreon is live. Um, Yay. At this point, it is live, but we haven't really actually told anyone yet because it's the fa- it's Tuesday, which is in two days that the first episode. When we say at this point, we mean as of recording, as, as of recording, of publishing. Yes, yeah. as of recording, we haven't had anyone join, so otherwise we we would probably take this time to say who's joined. But um, we yeah, we, so if you joined, thank you. Just don't know. We don't know yeah. yet. We don't know yet. So, but the next episode we record, we will be reading out the names. So, and you mm-hmm. get access to minisodes where we talk about the haunting of Hill House and things like that. So I just want Well, not yet. I don't think we've edited those yet. And by we, I mean Zoe. No, not yet. But that that's the kind of minisodes we will be releasing is things like that, the tarot cards, all of that. We went into it last episode, so I don't want to go into it too much this episode. But you can find it at patreon.com slash haunted hospitality. Oh, got us that good URL. <laughs> yeah. So, Robin, are you ready to hear my very Halloween-y story since this episode comes out the Tuesday before Halloween? I am ready. Thank you very much. All right. So I'm about to tell you about the man who killed Halloween. Mm-hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So Robin told me last time I told this story to her that she, her parents had not done this. However, I have distinct memories, and perhaps our listeners do, of my mom checking the wrapper of every candy that I got when I went trick-or-treating to make sure it hadn't been tampered with before she allowed me to eat anything. And this is because of the actions of this man. Now, the mm. myth, the folklore, the urban legend of somebody going around and drugging or putting razor blades in candies that's always kind of been a thing but this is the first recorded incident of it happening i definitely remember like the idea when i was and i was like a probably a preteen well i was probably 10 at this point but i definitely know that the idea that somebody could tamper with a candy was in my mind because there was, I mean, I was a maniac. I would like, you know, eat my candy day of, be like, gobble, 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 here's my pumpkin. <laughs> but uh, I remember there was one house in particular where we went up there, I was with my friends, and I think it was get candy out of a bowl situation. And I was just looking at one of the pieces of candy I grabbed as we were walking down the street, and I was like, this doesn't look right. Mm-hmm. This really doesn't. So I um, made the executive decision to not eat it. So I say that to say, uh, I this idea has pervaded to me as well, even though I don't think it was to the same level necessarily as in your house. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely had my mom coming through every single candy that I got to make sure that it had not been pre-opened and reclosed. And I Mm -hmm. actually have seen like Facebook articles being shared where like these various news sites are being like, check your kid's candy to make sure it's not the cannabis version of the candy. Because now that recreational cannabis is legal in some states, um, you can get like fake Sour Patch Kids that have THC in them. And, but the label has weed flowers all over, whatever they're called, leaves all over the package. And so like the, Articles are saying, oh, make sure the package, it's a real Sour Patch Candy, not a fake Sour Patch Candy. And it's like, who's going to give free edibles to kids? (laughs) Like, (laughs) that stuff's expensive. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I One time I was at a Burger King and... I got a chocolate milk with my breakfast. I'll let you get down to your story in a second. But I, one time I was at Burger King, I got a chocolate milk with my breakfast. And then I brought it home. And my dad opened it up. And then, because so there was a cap and then there was a foil seal over it. And there was a drop of condensation on top of the foil seal. And my dad saw that and was like, sometimes that's a sign that people have put poison in this. And then he threw away the chocolate milk. And then that was my first introduction to the fact that people could do that. And I was like, six or something i was like people are just gonna poison my chocolate milk oh there's a good chance that no they didn't poison your chocolate milk robin i think that's just how science works with the condensation but yeah yeah but 
hey, this man is the reason behind this. So that's true. Uh, this man is the man who killed Halloween, also known as the Candyman. Um, the Candyman is, this is separate from the Candyman horror movie that came out recently. That was a reboot of another horror movie. Um, that Candyman is a, like, demon thing. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But, uh, he is summoned by saying his name three times. So you would say Candyman, 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 and he would show up. And apparently, you know, I'm kill you violently. In the back to my entire room, and I don't like it when you say names three times while my back is to my entire room because it makes me feel like I'm in a horror movie, and I'm the person who bad thing is going to happen to. Bad things are going to happen to. It's okay. I can see your entire room, and I definitely will not tell you. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. you very much. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> so, the year is 1974. It is Halloween day. Ronald O'Brien and Danine O'Brien have dinner with their friends and their friend's child. And then the two couple, the two in the couple, bring their own kids, Timothy and Elizabeth, eight and five, respectively, and their friend's kid out trick-or-treating in their friend's neighborhood. So it's not their own neighborhood. It's the friend's neighborhood. And it's immediately after dinner. Also, fun fact. And so... Robert and Deneen are the only ones who are in charge of the children right now. Ronald and Deneen, yes. Okay. Did I say Robert? No, I probably did. I think that was just me. Okay. Yeah. So Ronald and Deneen are taking care of three kids. Two of them are their own, Timothy, who is eight, and Elizabeth, who is five. Ronald is an optician, and fun fact, he is currently wearing his lab coat, and he is also a deacon at the local church. And Damien was his wife and a homemaker. They went door to door collecting sweets, as you do when you're trick-or-treating. And then the kids came up to one house with the lights off and the door was shut. They knocked on the door and nobody answered. And the kids kind of pitched a little bit of a fit and they wanted to wait, but they also wanted to not lose out on getting more candy. So Ronald, the father, he's like, Hey, you guys go on ahead. I'll wait here and see if he opens the door. And if not, I'll just meet you up later, meet up with you later. So the kids moved on and he stayed back later. He told police that the door opened without any lights turning on an arm stuck out the door, a hairy arm and held five pixie sticks. Ronald took the pixie sticks and went on his way. Then he met up with the others, his wife and the three kids. And he handed out the pixie sticks to three of his kids. Well, the three kids with him. And then later that night, he handed the other two to two other children that he passed. So the kids were excited. Random kids. What? So like random kids. Yes, random kids. Okay. Who were also in the neighborhood. But then it started raining only two streets into trick-or-treating, so they all had to go home. Obviously, the kids were upset about this, so Timothy, his older son... Uh, the only son, but he's the older one, um, asked Ronald if he could have a candy before bed. And Ronald said, yes. So Timothy selected the giant pixie sticks, um, but he had a hard time pouring the powder sugar into his mouth. Um, If you don't know what a pixie stick is, it's like, this was a jumbo one, so it was a plastic tube. And you crack open the tube and it's like sugar, like colored flavored sugar powder. It's just powder of sugar in a tube. And if you like accidentally lick the inside, the powder sticks to the wetness and it won't come in. Also, if it's old and stale, the sugar clumps and won't come out the tube. So, um... He Timothy was having a hard time getting the sugar out, so Ronald took it and rolled it in between his hands as if you were trying to get friction to start a fire, and literally poured the contents of the tube into Timothy's mouth. Then um, Timothy complained that the powder tasted bitter, which 
pixie sticks are pure sugar, like I've said, and should not taste bitter. So Ronald gave Timothy some Kool-Aid to wash it down. A few minutes later, Timothy was complaining that his stomach hurt and he ran to the bathroom where he started violently throwing up and convulsing. Ronald held Timothy in his arms as he convulsed and called an ambulance. Uh, Timothy did end up going limp in Ronald's arms. By the time the ambulance got there, he was totally unresponsive and he actually passed away in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Hmm. Yes. So police immediately started knocking on doors. Um, They asked Ronald who else had the pixie sticks um, and he told them and they went and collected uh, three of the other four pixie sticks. They were able to find relatively quickly, but they couldn't find the fourth pixie stick, but they were able to find the family and they were searching through their kids Uh, bag looking for more looking for it but um, they couldn't find it and they rushed up to his room in a panic to find him sleeping with the pixie sticks cuddled in his hand singular pixie stick cuddled in his hand and his he had been too weak to open the pixie stick by himself so that was the only reason he had not consumed it yet was because he could not open it himself Mm-hmm. So none, no other child um, consumed any of the pixie sticks. It was just Timothy, and Timothy was the only one who passed. So the day after Timothy's death, um, the police made an announcement and said, Hey, parents, if you have any suspicious candy at all, please bring it to our police station today. And by the end of that day... <laughs> parents had brought in enough candy that they believed to be suspicious that it filled the entire uh, entire room at the police station i mean honestly if i was in that neighborhood i would probably have just brought my entire kids bucket or whatever yeah there and like gotten them like one of those snicker bags from walmart to make up for it exactly like i at this like if i knew that a child literally died in the last 24 hours due to candy handed to him while he was trick-or-treating i would be like "Uh uh-uh you are not touching a single piece of this candy because i wouldn't be and also we're not going trick-or-treating next year actually that is exactly what happened if you remember robin um halloween basically died in that town for years um for many children that was their last time trick-or-treating and it took a very long time for it to come back in this town um did i say where it was it's in deer park texas deer park texas so um they started investigating the pixie sticks they started with the pixie stick that Uh, Ronald ate, I'm sorry, Timothy ate, and they were able to discover that all five of them had previously been opened. About two inches of sugar was dumped out and then replaced with cyanide powder, and then it was resealed with tape. The candy that Timothy ate had enough cyanide to kill two adults and the others had enough to kill three or four adults in them. Um, also, fun fact that I mentioned last time, about two-thirds of the population can smell cyanide. Uh, those who can smell it say it smells like almonds. So um, they actually, the coroner who did autopsy on Timothy said that he smelled like almonds. So that's why they really started looking at the pixie six. Yeah, I think I heard that it's supposed to smell like burnt almonds. I have never heard burnt. I have heard almonds, but never burnt. Okay. Now, I could tell you what almond extract smells like. Can't tell you what an actual almond almond smells like. I think I would be able to recognize it. Okay. I don't eat nuts, so... <laughs> yeah. But, so, once they found out that, yes, it was the pixie sticks that had the cyanide powder and then the police immediately wanted to investigate the house that Ronald says he got the pixie sticks from. 
The problem is that Ronald didn't remember which house he got it from. He said that because it was his friend's neighborhood, not his own, he didn't know the area well enough to be like, oh, yeah, it's Mr. Jenkins' house or whatever. So the police took Ronald Mm -hmm. out and had him walk the neighborhood to try to find the house. Um, Despite the fact that they only walked down two streets the night before while trick-or-treating, the Um, Ronald had to walk the neighborhood three times before he was able to identify the house. He again, and when they asked him about what he saw that night, he just repeated his story that the house owner didn't turn on the lights. All he saw was a hairy arm. They didn't say anything. They just handed him the pixie sticks and he left. So the house Mm -hmm. belongs to a man named Courtney Melvin. He was an air traffic controller, and he didn't get home until 11 p.m. that night, by which time Timothy was already dead. Now, potentially he snuck out, went back home, whatever. Uh, But no, uh, almost 200 people uh, verified that, yes, he was at work the whole night, all night. So it was not him. I mean, at this point, you could maybe say somebody broke into his house and was passing out candy i i guess Mm -hmm. but that i mean if i wanted to not saying that i do but if i wanted to poison a bunch of kids by handing out candy i probably wouldn't do it from my own house but that's not the route that the police took the police decided to investigate ronald because they thought they yeah yeah the father they thought his his Actions were very suspicious for a father who had just lost his child. Um, They said that he wasn't crying or wailing, but they didn't really expect him to because this was in the 70s and men aren't allowed to cry even when their son just died in their arms. Um, But that was sarcastic, by the way. Men can cry too. Um, But... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But... So they kind of found him suspicious and they did a little bit of investigating because who takes candy from somebody that they don't even see and give it to their child? Yeah. And you, I I didn't think about this, but I mean, if that air traffic controlman was working that night, it makes sense that that would be the house where, okay, you're knocking on the door, nobody answers. And so it seems like he was, if he did this, uh, it seems like he was waiting on this opportunity. Exactly. That's what I was mm-hmm. thinking, too. He was waiting for somebody not to answer, and he left, let the kids go ahead. He waited a random amount of time and just took the Pixie Six out of his pocket. Which begs the question, like, what would have happened if everybody answered? What would, happen, ha- what would have happened if everybody was participating in trick-or-treat? So, based on what I... Uh, some things I'm going to get into later. Um, I believe he would have waited until the following Halloween to do it. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because he started... I'll get into it. I'll get into it. Because um, it, there's a specific point where it's talking about what people say about him that makes me think he's been thinking about this for at least two years. Okay. So, um, when the police started investigating Ronald, they found that Ronald was over $100,000 in debt. In 2020 terms, that's $520,000 in debt. Uh, He apparently had the history of moving between jobs correctly, correctly, quickly. Um, He had 21 jobs in the last 10 years. He was suspected of thieving money at his current optrician job. And he was on the verge of being fired. His car was days from being repossessed. His family home had been foreclosed on, so they were trying to have to move. Um, He had taken life insurance policies out on his kids. That's the real kicker, because not many people think to do that. However, in January of that year, so 10 months prior, he took out a $10,000 policy on each kid. Then, September, one month prior, he took out another $20,000 policy on each child against the insurance company's 
objections. I, okay. But wait, there's more. (laughs) The same week of Halloween, he took out another $20,000 policy on each child for a total of $60,000 on each child. Okay. Two things. First off, I can see somebody... Okay, funerals are expensive. Yeah. I can see somebody taking out the amount, like, doing a life insurance policy for children to the amount of what a funeral would cost, because those can be very expensive, and my guess is if it's a child who's passing away, it's a very... It's shocking you don't have the savings for it. Okay, I can see that, but anything beyond that is suspicious, which brings me to my second point, which is, if you are working at that insurance agency, at what point can you just put a line in to the police station and be like, listen, um, I'm not calling 911 or anything. I just think you need to know that this is some suspicious behavior. Absolutely. Like, I feel like that should somehow get flagged in the system, you know? It's it's almost in, like, the progression of it. It's almost like he got more and more in debt, so he took out another policy, you know? He's like, ooh, when this happens, I'm going to have to have a little bit more. I, I'm going to have to have just a little bit more. So he, this is him thinking about it for a while. This is him keeping this as an option. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. And potentially getting more and more greedy as time goes on. Well, if I'm going to kill my kid, I might as well get some money out of it, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. yep. I think it's pretty clear on um, if I think he's guilty or not. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. So Damien, his wife, says that she did not know about the policies. How true that is, you can't really guess. But perhaps she's willfully ignorant. You know, she could have seen the letters and uh, bills coming in for the insurance policies, but didn't really want to think that way of her husband you know yeah i mean and also you don't know how people divide the responsibilities of okay which finances or all finances are you keeping track of am i keeping track of i can definitely see it being a situation where maybe it was like okay well he's in charge of this i'm not mm-hmm. i've i've got my set of things to worry about because i mean some people do split it up that way in which case you might not know about it or you might completely trust what they're saying to the point that you're like okay well i don't need to check the statements because this is my life partner. Why would I need to check the statements? Exactly. And again, this happened in the 70s. And I think it wasn't until the 50s that women were even allowed to have bank accounts. So. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was illegal. Women weren't able to have a bank account. And if they wanted to withdraw any funds, they had to have a signature of their mother or I'm sorry, their father or their husband. I'm going to have to do some Googling. I'm going to have to do some Googling. Yeah. I'll, I'll take you at your word, but I need to. I yeah. will research. But the morning after Timothy died, so November 1st, Ronald called the insurance company asking about collecting the policies he took out. So his child, it was the morning of the 1st. So within 12 hours of his child dying, he was calling about collecting insurance policies. Yeah. And so this was, I guess, also the day that he was walking around the neighborhood with the police. Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. Um, they found a pocket knife in Ronald's home with candy residue on it. So as if he had used the knife to open up the pixie sticks. Um, they gave Ronald a polygraph and he failed it. Now, we both know that polygraphs aren't the most reliable sources of telling if someone's telling the truth or not. However, and they don't count as evidence. They don't count as evidence. However, I have seen multiple times where people, it generally generally seems like if somebody failed a polygraph, that means they failed it. But if they pass it, it doesn't necessarily mean they're telling the truth. You know? Yeah. Isn't it that like it's kind of easier for people who are psychopaths to pass it because their body doesn't have the same responses to fear or stress? Yes. And... Um, I, th- I think, I don't know if it's psychopaths, but there is a medical diagnosis that you can have 
where you genuinely don't know the difference between right and wrong. So you wouldn't fail a polygraph if you didn't think what you were doing is wrong. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Yeah. So the last nail in the coffin, um, Ronald had previously visited a chemical supply store in Houston a few months before Halloween to buy cyanide. He did not make the purchase because he found out that the smallest amount he could purchase was five pounds. However, he had shown interest in purchasing cyanide. That was the one thing that later in the court that the police either couldn't find out or never made public was where he got the cyanide, and they never mentioned if they found cyanide in his house. However, mm. he definitely walked into a chemical supply store and said, give me your cyanide, and they said, the smallest packet we have is five pounds, and he said, never mind, and walked out. Again, suspicious. Yes, yeah. Like, because I'm guessing if you are a chemical store, what you're doing is probably doing a lot of business-to-business transactions, where, okay, maybe you are a business that does work with cyanide, I'll give you cyanide, in which case you would definitely probably need it in a larger quantity. Now you have just a rando coming in here asking for a little bit of cyanide. I'm, yeah. Yeah. He's asking for a getting Rose for Emily vibes. Rose for Emily. I don't think I've heard, seen, watched, read that one. Read. It is a short story by William Faulkner, in which case it is uh, it is told in the collective we. So it's like the town talking about this woman who it is revealed at the end. I would say spoilers, but I think this was like written in like the early 1900s. Uh, she kills, um, she ends up killing, or it's re- end up, ended up being revealed that she killed this guy a while ago and it is people mentioning the fact that she had gone into an apothecary and bought rat poison and i just feel like i don't know that just seemed like a very suspicious thing for him to do and so it's another case of okay at what point are you allowed to kind of just tip people off that some people are being suspicious because i mean and i don't know i don't know it could just be like well there are customers and maybe we get this ask a lot and there's just other reasons you need cyanide i don't know right yeah i can't think of any but i feel like i feel like something to do with gardening needs cyanide i don't know why actually i think you're right because i was watching you um not you oh the movie the show you (laughs) the show and uh i he got this kid to buy him such suspicious items for, you know, getting rid of a body. And I think one of those things might have been cyanide, and he just excused it by saying it was all for his garden. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, so, um, the police's theory at this point was that he gave the candy to his children in the hopes of killing them so that he could collect on their life insurance policies. That way he can pay off his debts and he gave the other candy to the other kids to cover his tracks to not seem suspicious. So um, he was arrested on November 5th, 1974. However, he insisted from the beginning to the end that he was innocent. Now, is there any actual evidence that he put the cyanide in the candy? No, there isn't, based off of what I said. Um, There's some Mm -hmm. information later saying that he did, um, uh, he expressed interest in cyanide, that potentially he opened a candy packet, and that he had the life insurance policies on his kids, and he made sure that his kids ate, or that Timothy ate the, the pixie sticks. I don't know if any of it, proves without a doubt that he killed his kids or his child but I I believe he is guilty 100% yeah I mean it definitely seems that way um, there's something I want to say but I think you need to get a little bit further into the story before I do yes I'm, I think it's like five bullet points down and then I think you can say whenever you want Robin okay okay So, he was indicted on one count of capital murder, that would be Timothy, and four counts of attempted murder, that would be his daughter, the other kid, and the two grandos that he gave the pixie sticks to. 
He entered a plea of not guilty on all counts. Then the trial began on May 5th, 1975. During the trial, and Robin, this is why I think he would wait another year until next Halloween before he would, if he failed in this instance, because a chemist acquaintance of his said that in 1973, a year prior, he had asked him about how much cyanide would be fatal. So he had been asking about this for over a year now, about how Mm -hmm. much cyanide. So he's been plotting this. For at least a year. A full year. Um, A chemical supply salesman said that Ronald asked him how to purchase cyanide. His friends and co-workers said that in the recent years he showed unusual interest in cyanide. And spoke about how much it would take to kill a person. His Uh, (laughs) sister... Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. His sister and brother-in-law said that at Timothy's funeral... He had talked about using his money from the insurance policies to take a light, a long vacation or to buy other things. And the kicker is that Daneen said when Timothy had asked to eat a candy that night, he had actually selected a sucker out of the bag. But um, Ronald had actually forced him to select the pixie stick. So Ronald was like, nope, you can't have the lollipop. You can have the pixie stick or nothing. And so the child took the pixie stick. Mm-hmm. So Ronald's defense was the mad poisoner urban legend I mentioned at the beginning, where there's some random stranger who wanted to kill his kid by putting razor blades or can or poison in candy, despite the fact that there is no documented instance of a stranger poisoning Halloween candy and giving it to kids. So, um, at Robin, at this point, I think you can mention what you want because all the evidence is out. No, it's what ends up happening to him. Okay. Okay. So it's about, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just one little Sorry. like <laughs> tiny fun fact. Um, if you remember the BTK episode, um, I mentioned, that there was that one instance that really gave you a good insight to his brain and how he thought um, when he asked at, in the court why the police told him that a floppy disk would be untraceable when really it was the floppy disk that led the police to him. Mm-hmm. And he said, why would you lie to me, to the police? And they were like, we're trying to catch you. Like, that was just, like, such a small detail that's almost funny Mm -hmm. that gave you insight to his brain. This is another small detail. The prosecutor, who is Mike Hinton, said that during the court case, Ronald turned to him and offered him a Tootsie Roll. Oh, yeah. I'm remembering that now. And it's just like, you're literally being called the candy man. A man convicted or being being convicted of killing his child with candy and you're going to offer the prosecutor a Tootsie Roll? Like that's, Everything was just a joke to him. It, it really was. I, I genuinely don't think he saw any issue in his actions. He genuinely thought that he was innocent and it was almost like a mind game of being like, you want a Tootsie Roll? <laughs> like... Mm. There's something about it that just makes me go, ooh. And it's, like, almost funny. It's, like, if we weren't talking about the death of an eight-year-old boy, it would be so funny. (laughs) That's a quote for the year. Um, So, uh, So, a forensic psychologist later did describe um, what type of of person a poisoner usually is this is johnny johnston um she says that poisoners typically lack empathy since it takes a premeditated plan to kill someone in a cold calculated strategy she said quote poisoning is also an instrument for someone who is kind of cunning and sneaky not someone who is going to be physically or verbally aggressive they are also more likely to be polite behind the scenes, and as a result, they tend to fool people, end quote. 
So what I hear in that sentence is that Slytherins, Slytherins are poisoners. I mean, that checks out. Mm -hmm. It does. I feel like we've done a lot of Slytherin hate recently for a a duo that's half Slytherin. Yeah. And I'm not the Slytherin half. It's okay. I'm a Slytherin. What is it called? A Slytherpuff? A a Hufflin? I like Slytherpuff. Yeah, I think it's a Slytherpuff. So, um, on June 3rd, 1975, the jury took only 46 minutes to find Ronald guilty of all five counts and another 71 minutes to sentence him to death by electrocution. So, so- Okay. Okay. I have a thing to say about that. Do you want me to talk about how they debated sentencing him to death first? Yes. Yes, you do that. Okay, so apparently sentencing him to death was actually heavily debated. Um, He had never been in legal trouble before, not so much as a parking ticket. So the whole idea that is supposed to be prison um, is that prison is supposed to rehab you um, so that when you come out, you can be a model citizen, essentially. So they had no proof that he was unable to be rehabilitated. And so sentencing him to death is saying that you do not believe he can be rehabilitated. However, the jury believed that since this single transgression was so horrific, the fact that he killed his own child didn't seem to be regretful about it at all, tried to kill his other child and tried to kill three other kids four other kids, no, his own child, then three other kids. That was such a horrible, horrible thing that you cannot come back from that. So that is why they decided to give him a death sentence. Okay. My thing is that, okay, talking between the two of us, it totally seems like he killed him. Okay. I believe that. Uh, I'm surprised... I'm I'm not surprised he was convicted. I am surprised that he was sentenced to death when they don't have physical evidence of him actually doing it. Right. Uh I'm I'm kind of surprised about that. And because okay, especially when I hear about how obsessed he was with cyanide. Yeah, it seems clear to me and I can again Conviction means beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I I can see that. But the the idea of, like, actually doing a death sentence when you don't have it clearly spelled out completely in front of you, as in, like, the court of law, that sounds like too much for me. Um, and, I mean, what if you're thinking about, okay, this person can't be rehabilitated, you have life without parole. People get sentenced to that. Um, so I'm kind of just surprised they didn't go that route. Right. So, like, to be convicted, it has to be without a reasonable doubt. I feel like Mm -hmm. to be life sentence, it should be beyond any doubt. Any doubt. I'm not life sentence, death sentence, excuse me. But, yeah. No, I'm with you on that. Um, I'm not here defending this guy, but, um, I'm here talking about the legal process of it all. Right. And I think that if they found physical evidence, like a video or something of him lacing the pixie sticks, it would make sense to me. It would. But yeah, like having no concrete evidence and he was professing his innocence the whole time. Do I think his does do I think that his innocence is BS? Yes, I do not think he's innocent at all. But it's one thing for me to sit here recording a podcast talking about him not being innocent. And it's a completely mm. different other thing to sit through a court case and listen to a man say, I'm innocent and then sentence him to death. I think that the reason they went with the death penalty in this case is because it was a child murder and like, I mean, a child murder and his own child and the attempted murders of other children. And now everybody who is in this town is kind of scared because yeah. for their own children's sake. Because 
he, he was randomly handing it out, and I'm sure the fear they felt, it was all very real. Um, it, it, it sounds like to me that maybe a lot of feelings were involved as to why he was sentenced to death. That maybe wouldn't have happened if it was an adult he had killed in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you can exactly kill an adult in the same way, but if it was an adult that he had killed. Um, and, yeah, so, okay, that was... At, maybe that's, like, one of the things that happens when we get to, like, actually sit down with this for a bit longer because I didn't have that thought the first time you were telling me this story. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, it just... It seems a bit rash to me. Right, yeah. And um, I agree with you. Like, he's basically a terrorist at this point in their eyes. Because it's a jury of Mm -hmm. your peers, so it's other people in the town. There's no way you can get a jury of people who haven't heard the story in this small town, you know? Yeah, and that's typically what they try to look for. um, And that's one of the reasons that, you know, it takes a long time to find juries for high-profile cases. So you have to, I mean, maybe people can have heard of it. But you have to find people who are not already predisposed to thinking one certain way. And actually, I have a that kind of brings me to a bit of a side, but I don't know if we want to go that route because it might go on another tangent. So I'm going to let you get back to your story. Okay. All right. So, uh, so yes, they gave him the death sentence. After he was convicted, Danine filed for divorce, divorce, divorce. Um, she has since remarried, and her new husband had legally adopted Elizabeth. Um, Good for them. Yes. Good for them. While on death row, Ronald was shunned and despised by other inmates um, for killing his own child. And mm. they actually were the ones who came up with the term, excuse me, the candy man. So that's what they would okay. call him to tease him in prison. And, like, he was shunned. He was, like, ooh. He had to be in solitaire for a li- Solitaire? Solitary confinement for a little bit. Um, so, yeah. They, they did not like him. So his first execution date was set for August 8th, 1980, five years after his guilty conviction. But he actually got a series of stay of education. A series of stays of executions. So one of the dates that they did set for him, I think it was the 3rd or the 4th, was October 31st, 1982. It was the 8th anniversary of his crime. And I personally, just for poetic reasons, kind of hope, like, when I saw that, I was like, ooh, is this the one he actually died in? No. He got another stay um, because they told the state that they wanted to pursue an appeal to seek a new trial. And I think this, that reason alone is the reason why they gave him a death penalty because they didn't want in 20 years when this whole thing had cooled down a little bit for him to ask for a new trial and then get away. I honestly Mm. think that could have been a reason for the death penalty. Do I think that's just no? Yeah. Yeah. That's not, just, but in a bias world, which I'm assuming, you know, if you lived in that town, it's... It, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, but, so they um, postponed it again. He did not get a retrial. And his final execution date was set for March 31st, 1984. Ten years after he killed his child. They uh, tried to get another stay because they claimed that lethal injection was too cruel, but it was turned down. And leading up to his death, uh, Ronald said that he was steady as a rock and that he wasn't afraid to die. His last meal was a well-done steak and a Boston cream pie. And Robin and I talked about how awful it is that he got a well-done steak um i'm 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 a medium yeah i mean i rarely get steak but if i do it's medium oh i love steak i had steak quesadillas last night was it good oh so good i get them from pedro's delicious so on march 31st shortly after midnight ronald was executed by lethal injection he was pronounced dead at 12:48 a.m Ronald maintained his innocence the entire time, and he said that he felt his execution was wrong. 
he winked and nodded to the witnesses at the because you know they have you like in this booth in windows and you have to have witnesses when anybody's lethally injected um it's usually the families of the victims that are there um or the victims themselves depending but he would wink and nod at them while he was getting all needled up so his lastish words ish um Bringing back the segment. Yes. Quote, What is about to transpire in a few minutes is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts, I love you one and all. God bless you and all, and may God's best blessings be always yours. P.S. During my time here, I have been treated well by all TDC personnel. And um, we acknowledged that the P.S. was actually something he spoke out loud. Yes, yes. That, he, said P.S. he said P.S. They've treated me really well here. 10 out of 10 would recommend. So. It's dark. <laughs> So, um, during his execution, there were actually three different demonstrations happening. So, one demonstration was within the prison, where the other people who were on death row with him were celebrating and yelling out, is he dead yet? Um, yeah. Okay. Yes. There was a secondary demonstration outside of the prison, where there were about 30 people who showed up protesting the death penalty in general. Okay. And then there was a group of 300 people gathered outside the prison cheering and yelling. They yelled trick or treat and they pelted the anti-death penalty protest with candy. You you don't need to. Okay. I, you, you don't need to pelt other people with candy. And also that's, a, a weird way to protest this specific crime. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also, it seemed like this guy was really non-controversial. Yeah. Yeah, totally. 100%. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it took me a second to get your sarcasm, but I got there. I got there. It was there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, last couple bullet points. Uh, his sister-in-law said that the family felt a definite sense of relief after his death, but any tears that they had were for Timothy. And yeah. Ronald, yeah. the optician, donated his eyes for research and cataract transplants after his death. I am pro donating your organs. Yeah. And of course, the yeah. optician donates his eyes. Okay. Yep. But yes, that. Oh, wait. Obst- he was an eye guy. Yeah. Okay, I don't know what the. Okay, thank you. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know what the O word was. <laughs> but yeah, that's the story of the Candyman, a.k.a. the man who killed Halloween and his son. All right. Well, thank you for sharing, Zoe. <laughs> yes, thank you for listening for a second time. And happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, oh, we have a special coming out. Yes, yes. Oh, please pay attention <laughs> to this. We have a special. Yeah, please pay attention. We have a special coming out October 31st. We are doing uh, a Halloween episode. We are really excited to share it with you guys. Yes. Um, We hope you listen, and we think it'd be cool. I mean, we know everybody's Halloweens are busy, et cetera, et cetera, but um, we just hope to share, like, a little day of thing with you. Yes. So if you please listen to the day of, we would love it so much if you listened to it the day of. Um, this is going to be super exciting for us, and I promise you, I promise you it's worth listening to. Robin and I have been, um... We've been thinking about this for a while. We have, and, uh, I, Halloween is my favorite, uh, holiday, so I definitely wanted to put 110% into this episode, 
and it will it's be my second favorite holiday. <laughs> we will be recording in person, so it won't be any mm-hmm. technical stuff. It will be in person. Oh, oh, and by that, I guess because we're tele recording now yeah virtually. yeah 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 i'm like well we're not gonna be in front of people no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah we're going we to go to your them. house individually knock on your door and act out the entire thing just tell you a story yeah. or two about halloween <laughs> okay yeah that's what we're doing all right i hope you guys listen um and I, we'll, we'll get into the outro now. Yes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, review, and tell a friend of because that is the best way to tell people about the podcast you like. Yes. And if you want to see my blog and my show notes, head over to hauntedhospitality.wordpress.com. Also, if you have your own spooky stories, whether that be supernatural or true crime, please send it to hauntedhospitalitypodcast at gmail.com. Also, check us out at Patreon slash Haunted Hospitality. Well, patreon.com slash Haunted Hospitality. If you are on Twitter, you can find us at Haunted Host. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and again, I was going to say LinkedIn, but we're not on LinkedIn. We no. should not be on LinkedIn. It's not, that's not our audience. Or TikTok at Haunted Hospitality. We hope to see you there. All right. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. We got close on we're that one. Be so much better next time, guys. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you, everyone. All right. Thanks. Bye.